worship with us, and it is certainly our hope and our prayer that uh, your experience here will be an experience of uh, the grace and the truth and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are a first-time visitor here in person, we offer a warm welcome to, to you. We hope you got kind of our goodie bag, lets us uh, know, lets you all know a little bit about us, and hopefully we can begin a friendship with you all. And speaking of friendship, we have what we call friendship pads at the end of the row. And so if you're at the end of an aisle, we'd ask you to get that started. And this is for everyone. It allows us to uh, develop that friendship with you, see who's here. So please sign in, pass it down the aisle, and we would greatly appreciate that. I want to make several different announcements before we enter into worship. The first is that the session has called a congregational meeting for Sunday, June the 5th. That is two weeks from today, immediately following this worship service, the 1030 service. And the purpose is giving a brief presentation of the 2022 budget. And there will also be a short briefing on some security measures for the church. And so we hope that uh, as many of you as possible are able to attend that. Reminder, that is on Sunday, June the 5th. And then a note that the patriotic picnic will be Sunday, June 26th, after the service. We're hoping and praying for a beautiful day. Hopefully not too warm. Isn't that, is that too much to ask? Are we getting too greedy with God if we sit there and go, can we have a cool front and less humidity uh, to be able to enjoy that? There is a sign-up sheet. Brent and Carol Johansson will kind of be operating that along with their fellowship team. See them immediately after the service in terms of that. And then a brief note, this is not until July, but our summer schedule a little bit. As many things, home fellowship groups and some Bible studies, I don't know about all, but take a little bit of a hiatus just to give a, I'll call it a brief sabbatical. Summer Sunday school for both children and adults will be on a brief sabbatical for July and August. So our last Sunday of that will be June the 26th. We'll pick up right away the first Sunday of September. So nothing is going away. This allows us, obviously, you have travel schedules and everything else that goes on. And it also allows us some dedicated planning time for the fall. And so we appreciate your understanding with that. So those are several things that I wanted to announce going on in the life of the church. And so now as the prelude is played for us, let's prepare our hearts for worship.
God has called each one of us into his very presence this morning to worship him. And so we are called to bring our whole selves to God. Whether you are kind of on the mountaintop and feeling great, or whether you are discouraged, afraid, disappointed, wherever you might be, God calls us to pour out our hearts to him, to seek him while he may be found. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So, Father, as all the earth sings praises to you, may we gather here with one heart, one mind, and one voice to together lift up our praises to our God and our King. May we seek your glory and the exaltation of your holy name. Join with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we may worship and magnify you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let us stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. work, I, each week, I don't know if you know this or not, there is a, theologians call it a liturgy, which simply means a structure to what we do in worship. In other words, we don't just hodgepodge make this up out of our mind. And the structure to worship is traditionally meant to 
repeat, recapitulate the gospel story each week. And you know why we do that? We actually just sang about it. Because as the hymn said, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is the point of remembrance and renewal in the scripture. And every worship service is a covenant renewal service where we are being renewed in the story of God because some story is going to shape us. I get you one hour a week. That means if my math is correct, and I'm not a mathematician, I think there's 167 more. Am I correct on that? I think 168 hours in a week, 167 more. If my math is off, then I'm, you know, I get you one hour a week. Everything else, from the good, the bad, the ugly, gets you however many other hours a week. And so I'm going to drum in that gospel story because my heart, as well as your hearts, are prone to wander. Lord, I leave it. And so the liturgy of the gospel story is it begins with God. The gospel is God-centered. God calls us and confronts us with his glory and his holiness. That's why we start with a call to worship that says all creation comes to bow before God and worship. And like Isaiah in the temple, whenever we see the glory of God, the next part of the gospel story is it calls us to confess our sin. That's why we do confession each week, because the story of the gospel goes from glory to confession. And so our need of confession comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah, after being confronted with the glory of God, says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now we're going to take a few moments and engage personally in confessing our sins, and then we will pray together a corporate prayer of confession. But then the rest of worship, which is recapitulating the gospel story, is about receiving the grace of God. So we are going to sing, praise, pray, and preach about the grace of God so that we can be sent out receiving the blessing of God. This is what the benediction does. We receive the objective favor of God to go out and be a blessing to the world. That, my friends, is the gospel story that we seek to have govern and shape our lives. Let's take a few moments to personally engage with God, confessing where you are with God, with others, with life this week, and then we will pray in a few moments together in unison this corporate confession of sin.
Friends, let us pray together, praying our corporate confession of sin in unison. Merciful Lord, we confess that with us there is an abundance of sin, but in you there is the fullness of righteousness and abundance of mercy. We are spiritually poor, but you are rich, and in Jesus Christ came to be merciful to the poor. Strengthen our faith and trust in you. We are empty vessels that need to be filled. Fill us. We are weak in faith. Strengthen us. We are cold in love. Warm us. And make our hearts fervent for you, that our love may go out to one another and to our neighbors through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, if we confessed our sins and left it there, that certainly wouldn't be good news at all. But and this is where, and we just looked at this in our adult Sunday school class, this is where God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. We may come to him with all sorts of distorted images of him thinking, uh-oh, I just confessed my sins. If I'm honest about the state of my heart, the condition of my heart, he's going to get me. That's not who God is. God is compassionate. He says, seek him while he may be found. Return to him, for his ways are not our ways. And so, friends, receive, embrace, surrender to this assurance of pardon from Isaiah 6, 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Friends, do you think if God has removed your guilt, has taken it away, he's going to give it back to you? What kind of picture of God is that? In Christ and through the cross of Christ and vindicated on the resurrection, your guilt, your shame has been taken away, and your sin atoned for. I implore you, my friends, be reconciled to God and receive, drink in the assurance of pardon. And then from the depths of our heart, let's stand and sing, what kind of God is this? Behold our God.
Let us go to the Lord now in a time of prayer. We will pray in unison first the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. That you are our shepherd who leads us. That by your Holy Spirit, you guide us. You nurture us. You protect us. You train us. You discipline us. You bring us into a family so that we belong to you, but we also belong to one another. This morning we are in our message in this text from Romans 8. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of sonship and what it means that you are our father. And Lord, I, I must confess, and maybe we all do, what a beautiful image that that is, but our hearts have so far to grow in understanding and cultivating the intimacy and the power of that image. And so I pray that you will be at work. And I pray, Father, that we would hallow your name, that intimacy would not just be a warm, fuzzy feeling, but that there would be a real power behind it, that there is a union and a communion and a closeness because of Christ, who, God, if you're our Father, he's our elder brother. And we experience you through the ministry of the Spirit. Thank you for the Trinity. Thank you for how you reveal yourself to us. Your thoughts truly are not our thoughts. Your ways truly are not our ways. And we praise you for that. And we surrender to that. And Lord, we ask for your kingdom to come, recognizing that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's been inaugurated, but it is not yet finished. There is an already not yet quality to your rule and reign. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, consummate your work, restore all things, restore and heal all creation. We still experience death and dying, disease, crying, mourning and pain. And we long for the healing, the renewal, the cosmic renewal of all things. So we cry out because you invite us to cry out, Abba, Father, that your kingdom would come, and that in the meantime, as we hasten and we wait for the kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth, we would commit ourselves to doing your will on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for our nation. We pray for the primaries that have been taking place and the primaries that will take place this week, and we pray for your will to be done. We pray that we would surrender to your will. We pray that we'd be guided by you. And Lord, we are dependent upon you for our daily bread. We are dependent upon you for spiritual nurturing, physical nurturing, emotional, relational, intellectual, in every area of our lives. Jesus, you are our bread of life. And Lord, as we have sought you for forgiveness and received forgiveness, may we be a gracious and forgiving people to others. Any who have hurt us, may, be, we, may we be quick to forgive. 
And Lord, we seek holiness of life. We pray, Father, that we would not be led into temptation, but we know we have an enemy, the evil one, who is indeed our enemy. We don't want to be afraid, but we want to be realistic and recognize that he is an enemy. And so we ask that you would deliver us from evil. And we recognize and we pray and we acknowledge and we praise you that yours is the kingdom. It doesn't belong to us. Yours is the power and yours is the glory forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jocelyn, Amy, all of Wow. There's the sermon. I will sing of my Redeemer. You all make my job so easy. All I have to do is go listen to them. We don't want this to be about me at all. My prayer is that we exalt Jesus Christ. We are going to continue, though, in Romans 8. So I, I'm going I'm to earn my paycheck, so to speak. <laughs> so we'll continue on doing that. But I get caught up, and this is, that's what worship is meant to be. I think I've shared this with you before, but Tim Keller in class said to us one time that the essence of worship is surprise. And of course, we're kind of going, what? What does he mean by that? You know, he's going to say boo? That, and that's not the surprise he's talking about. He's going, the Holy Spirit is as sovereign as Jesus is as the Father, and you will never know where the Spirit will show up and what the Spirit will do in the midst of worship. Sometimes he's going to confront us, and it won't be comfortable. Other times he's going to comfort us, and it's going to just feel amazing. Other times he's going to convict us of something. He's going to challenge. He's going to contradict us. There's a way we've been going, and he's going to say, stop, I'm going to intercept that self-destructive behavior. And so sometimes I just have to, you know, the Holy Spirit shows up and surprises me, and I'm just kind of going, wow, I will sing of my Redeemer. That is what we are called to do, not only in worship, but to equip us to go out into the community and by our lives, our words, our deeds, our actions, sing of our Redeemer, make him famous, make him great, and pray that the Lord will show up here at Lake Oconee and show up and we will reach, be used by God to reach people for Christ. If you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. As we're doing so, let's pray and lift up our hearts to the Lord. Father, I pray that even in this time, as we take a look at this magnificent text, we will sing of our Redeemer. We will sing of Jesus. We will exalt him. Holy Spirit, we pray for you to show up, and it's an exciting, adventurous time because I don't know exactly what you're going to do in each one of our lives. That's why you're sovereign. That's why you're God and we're not. But I pray for your movement, your activity in our lives, and our listening to the Spirit through your word. What are you showing each of us individually and corporately? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Picking up at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, the text upon which our teaching is based this morning is Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. I have a dear friend who's probably given me the best preaching advice I've ever gotten. 
He says simply, and if I would listen, it would change my hours and hours of preparation. I'd probably get to play golf more often. He says, God is good, sin is bad. And then I always like to add, and Jesus is awesome. Now, this morning, in our text that we're looking at, we are looking at one of the most awesome aspects of what Jesus has purchased, has accomplished, has done for us. And that is not only giving us the legal objective justification, forgiveness from sins, but then bringing us into the family of God, that we are adopted as his sons and daughters that we have that belonging, that we have that security. Probably one of the most, one of the classic theological books, one of the most, one of the best theological books I've ever read is J.I. Packer's classic study, Knowing God. Okay, you've got the classic study, and then I think the classic chapter in that classic study is his chapter on adoption. And Packer writes, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it, as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, his whole outlook and perspective on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. So let me ask you this question. What governs, I'm not talking intellectually, functionally, how you live, what governs your outlook on life? How do you move out toward the world? How do you approach the world? How do you approach relationships? See, your self-image, and I'm not talking about the psychological concept there. I'm talking about your concept of God, yourself, the world, will govern what you project to others and govern how you approach others and the world. And see, again, I say I'm not promoting popular cultures psychological view or promotion of self-image as kind of the most important thing is to feel good about yourself no matter what. That's not what I'm talking about. But see, for most of us, and this is where we have to kind of do some diagnostic work to do some application work, for most of us, our self-image, our self-concept to some degree or another is controlled by our performance. In other words, if I have a good day, if I'm performing well, if I view myself as successful, if I view myself as looking good, feeling good, whatever that might mean to us, I have a good day. We project ourselves, we approach the world with more of a positive image. But if we're feeling mostly shame, guilt, weakness, we promote a negative, needy image of ourselves to the world. And then, we approach the world, we approach others, we approach relationships, needing others to come through for us, which is the opposite of biblical love. So we end up approaching others from a mostly self-centered, what can they do for me, how can they come through for me approach. 
So you either approach others and move out toward them being full and looking to give, or basically empty and needing to receive. So the most practical question is, what are we going to be full with? What is it that is going to fill us to allow us to give to others out of that fullness? What will fill us? In this quote by Packer, his proposition concerning the biblical doctrine of adoption is that if the reality that we are children of God, adopted, significant, safe, secure, does not control our entire outlook on life, then we do not have a very good understanding of Christianity. Yes, we may be Christians. We believe the right thing. But we simply don't get it. It's not what's governing our outlook on life. We may be Christians, but to the degree that we're not governed and controlled by the thought that we are God's sons and daughters. God has already declared his opinion of you. Because you are in Christ, God has already said, my smile is upon you. I love you. I like you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are safe and secure. That is set. So let's take a look at this passage with this proposition in mind that we need to be governed by our sonship, by our adoption, and ask the question, how does this text teach us about sonship? And we're going to discover it teaches us in three ways, by showing us a reality, what is promised, characteristics, what it's like, and the key, how do we get it? Not just the reality, not just its characteristics, but we need to know how do we embrace this? How do we get this in our lives? Let's look first at the reality of our sonship. And verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But that follows verses 12 and 13, okay, that talks about we are debtors, not to the flesh. Now remember, the flesh here is not our skin and bones, it's not physicality. It's not the floor we walk on or any part of that. The flesh is this force, this operating power that is governed by sin, death, rebellion, and corruption. In other words, flesh is that which is the governing power arrayed in hostility towards God. And here's Paul saying, we're debtors not to that power, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you're living according to the power opposed to God, you're going to experience death in your relationship to God, yourself, others, and the world ultimately leading to ultimate death. But if by the Spirit you put to death, in other words, kill the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It is by the Spirit. Now notice if it's by the Spirit, what is it not by? It's not by our self-sufficiency. It's not by our self-effort. It's not by our self-discipline. It's not by knowing all the right facts or information. It's by this supernatural power that, remember, we've been looking in Romans 8. Romans 8 is all about how to experience God, and you experience God by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. And I've tied in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus teachings on prayer, and he says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, your son or daughter asks for X, and you say, well, I'm not going to give them Y, 
how much more will your Holy Spirit, will your Father, Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to kill sin. Sin in our lives, both in its roots and its fruits. Tim Keller, speaking about John Owen, who wrote a classic book on this called Mortification and Sin, says, you either are killing sin or sin will be killing you. And then he also goes on to say that Owen also says that we will never in this life be able to completely eradicate the roots of a sin or of sin in our lives. In other words, it will never magically go away in this life. Now, verse 14 follows up on that, saying, for because we're living according to the Spirit, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Remember last week, we made the point that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Christ. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. Now we're learning that if we have the Spirit of God, being a Christian means that we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. Now, the word sons there is a single word in the Greek, kuios, where we need to understand this from the ancient world's perspective. In the ancient world of the Greeks and Romans, there was a legal transaction whereby a wealthy person who had no children and was maybe getting up in years could adopt a son, adopt an heir. And when the legal papers went through, in a second, that status changed, and that person was an heir. Do we understand this reality? The way we typically behave, act, feel, perceive, move out towards others proves or demonstrates that we don't. We say we do, but it's kind of like we live based on, I have a good day, however we define that good day, and then, oh, God must like me. I'm being blessed. I'm a son or daughter. I have a bad day. I don't do what I think I should do. Oh, God must be displeased with me. God's out to get me. God doesn't like me. Maybe I'm not a son or daughter. Remember I said Tim Keller calls this daisy theology. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. The reality of sonship is the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, there is a status change, a legal transaction. Something is put on you. You're not just given a pardon. You are legally adopted. It's like being a defendant and you're in the holding cell. You come out for the trial and you hear the verdict, not guilty, forgiven, righteous, set free. But outside the courthouse, you get outside the holding zone, you look, get outside, all of a sudden there's this stretch limousine waiting to pick you up, waiting for you. You don't go home back to your old dilapidated house, your old neighborhood. Instead, you are taken to the palace of the judge who happens to be the king. And you go with him, go home with him, to live with him, and to be his heir. It's like Jack Miller would say, it's like the governor not only giving the about-to-be-executed man a pardon, but saying to him, come into the governor's family. We now have this legal status. You are a child of God, and you are seen legally by God, just like his own son, Jesus. That's the first thing that's promised. 
That's the first part of the reality, is a status change. But there's more. Look with me at verse 15. He says, and this is the experience, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now I want you to notice something. Verse 14 said, because you are led by the spirit, you are sons. Can't be undone. It's done. It's a reality. It's a status change. It's over. But now there's something additional. This says you receive the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, and you've received it into your heart. So this is something internal to you. This is something now, this is a whole different realm or situation. The spirit's role is to give you this experience, this reality, to go from abstraction to reality. It's kind of like going from head to heart, which head is part of the heart, you know. But it's to make it real. Practically, this means that if we're feeling bleak, low, depressed, despondent, you can claim what the sun does. You can say, I know I'm a child of God. This status has been confirmed on me. Whether I feel like it or not, it is true. It's reality. I claim it. I remind myself of it. But we need more. There is something else, and this is so important, that we desperately need. See, again, let's do diagnostic work. Let me show you how much we need it. We say, I believe I'm a child of God. Jeff, what are you talking about? This is Theology 101. I believe this. Huh. Let's enter into the MRI for a second. Is this always how we move out towards the world? Ask yourself, why are you so defensive? Why are you so sensitive to criticism? Why do you have times where you feel like such a failure? Why do you feel like when you've done something wrong, why does it take you so long to start to kind of live a normal life again? Why, when you have to ask for somebody's forgiveness or maybe repent before somebody, there's never joy in it? It's kind of a drudgery. Why does it seem like psychological death? Why do we compare ourselves to people all the time? Obviously, all of these things reveal. Remember I said this is diagnostic. All of these things reveal that being a son or daughter of God, as great as we say it is, is not quite enough. It's not sufficient. It doesn't fill us. I need being a son or daughter of God, and I need you to like me. I need to, to be a son or daughter of God and know I'm not a failure. I need to be a son, of God, son or daughter of God and know that I'm doing okay. Functionally, we're living like being a son or daughter of God is not enough. You need this work of the Holy Spirit. You need to experience the reality of your sonship. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary reminds us of a story of how the Puritan Thomas Goodwin stated the matter of the experience of adoption. He said, I want you to visualize something. I want you to picture something. Picture a man walking along a road with his little boy. They're holding hands, father and son, son and father. The little boy knows that the man is his father. 
and that his father loves him. But suddenly, the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him up into his arms, embraces him, and kisses him. The boy is no more his son when he is being embraced than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy one bit, but oh, the difference in the experience. Oh, the difference in the enjoyment. And Lloyd-Jones says, that is what you need. The experience of what you have, the enjoyment. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, describes home as the father's kiss. He says, home is the center of my being where I can hear a voice saying, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You know, that's what the father said to Jesus at Jesus' baptism. The heavens were torn open, and a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, you are God's son or daughter, and you're united to Jesus Christ. The voice that Jesus heard is the same voice speaking over you, saying, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. How would we be different if we truly embraced and moved out and were filled up with the fact that we are well-pleasing, that God, our Father, is well-pleased with us? That's the reality. Now, some of the characteristics of this, and I just want to be brief here. The first one is intimacy. Again, look at verse 15 where it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the word cry there is a very hard word to translate in English because the word cry is not nearly strong or passionate enough. It's the Greek word kratzomen. It's a word which means to cry out, to call out, to shout out, to even shriek. And here is what we learn. We are talking about profound passion and feeling, very, very deep. But we're not just talking about emotion or feeling for the sake of emotion or feeling, because where do we cry out, pour out from the depths of our heart with this kind of passion? We cry out, Abba, Father. So we are talking about intimacy and experience in prayer. The work of the Spirit is not to get us to cry out, period. We're not to walk around talking to each other, crying out and shrieking like this. But this is to characterize our prayer life and the intimacy and the union in our prayer life. See, let me ask you this question. How honest are you before God in prayer? Depths of the bones, honest with God. Do you tell God when you're mad at him? Do you even know when you're mad at him? Do you lament before him? Do you tell God how, because this says that sonship, believing that we're secure in this, will have the characteristic of this kind of intimacy. And notice again this word Abba, again a hard word because essentially Abba was like baby talk, the language of children, a daily form of address to the Father. It's the language of children. What it's saying is, Tim Keller makes this point, he says, a child doesn't doubt unless you teach the child to doubt that you love him or her. Picture a child in a crib and they just naturally raise their hands, pick me up, 
They cry, feed me. I went to the bathroom, change me. They're just simply crying out, Abba. You have to actually teach the child to doubt your love. The children just know that you love them and that they are important and that you can be trusted. Now, God is our Abba Father, and the Spirit is showing you this. Why? Because look what the text says. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of sonship. Notice that this says naturally, our default mode. I know we like to walk around and say, I don't experience fear. I'm not afraid. (laughs) The text says that naturally, our natural spirit is prone to fear. We're slaves of fear, whether we project it or not. Some of us are very good at hiding it. But the spirit helps us to not be a slave to fear. Lastly, how do we experience this sonship? How do we live this? See, the answer to this is very important. And this ties into what we've been saying is fundamentally the central function of the Holy Spirit, how exactly he carries out his ministry. Remember we talked about last week, the Spirit's job is to mediate or manifest the presence of Christ to the believer, to make real what Jesus has accomplished. That means the Spirit comes on the basis of the work of Christ And therefore, the Spirit's availability is on the basis of the performance of Christ. So what does this mean practically? It means we have to learn to meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done. We have to take truth in, not as academic knowledge, but the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. We can't just, by osmosis, say, okay, Holy Spirit, Hit me with an experience. That's not how it works. What we do is we worship and we meditate and we chew on the work of Jesus on our behalf. You look at his work. You see the work that he's done. Whether you're in the word, whether you're in prayer, you remind yourself of him. And as you're gazing at him, meditating on him, the spirit comes. Robert Murray McShane who's the author, he was a Scottish preacher, died at the age of 29. He's the author of the Bible reading plan that we're doing. He had a phrase, he said, for every one look you take at sin, take ten looks at Christ. Can you imagine if we began to practice that? Some of us are very good at saying, here's what's wrong with me. How are we doing at taking ten looks at Jesus? The only thing that will change us. Are we gazing at Jesus? Do we find Jesus beautiful? See, the best way to define if something is beautiful to you is you see it as an end in itself, not a means to an end, not using it to get something else. Are you finding Jesus beautiful for who he is in and himself? To find God beautiful means I just want to adore him for the beauty of who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have adopted us into your family and made us your sons and daughters. And Lord, we confess we fully do not understand all that that means. Lord, I pray we could, and may we spend the entirety of our lives cultivating that reality, that that governs our outlook and how we move 
towards you and towards others and towards the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand. Our closing hymn this morning is Great is Thy Faithfulness. now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.